Buonasera a tutti, good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Viviana and I would like to welcome back our regular listeners and also welcome any new listeners. Also be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Italian Radio Hour and subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch up on any past video interviews. Vorrei dare il benvenuto ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo, grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. I'm very privileged to have uh, um, Luisa del Giudice today as a guest um, because we will be diving into many different conversations, talking about folklore, maybe we'll even dive into World War II and the idea of abundance and eventually her latest book, in search of abundance, mountains of cheese, rivers of wine, and other gastronomic utopias that will make a perfect gift for the holidays. But before bringing Luisa to the program, a piccola pubblicità. Parli italiano? Do you want to learn, improve, or master your Italian? Istituto Monte Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Region Square, Monte Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Welcome to the program, Luisa. How are you? Nice to be here. Uh, well, the- it's great to, to have you, a fellow Laziale. Uh, so um, ah. I believe uh, you uh, were born in, uh, in uh, Terracina, so Latina, and we have a summer home in Anzio, so we're not too far. <laughs> from uh, one another. And uh, so um, you uh, define yourself as an independent uh, scholar. You have taught folklore and oral history at uh, UCLA. And uh, also you have uh, created a very interesting nonprofit organization, the Italian Oral History Institute of Los Angeles. And uh, I will definitely would want to talk about that and uh, but you're also internationally known for your work in Italian and Italian diaspora folklore studies. So let's uh, let's first uh, um, follow your uh, personal journey. Um, how uh, uh, you end up from Terracina to Los Angeles? I'm sure there are some stops along the way. Uh, yes, there are, and I do live in this triangulation at present, but. I was born in Terracina, um, 1956, and I was an infant when my mother and my three sisters went to, after the war, I mean, there was a lot of poverty and uh, we needed to find a way out. And my father had a brother in Toronto, um, Zio Pietro, and he hosted him. And so my father went ahead, as was very common then, and then, you know, called Chiamato La Famiglia, and the three of us followed uh, later uh, that same year. So that's how we ended up in Toronto. It could have been Venezuela, it could have been South America, Australia. It happened to be Toronto, but he was willing to go just about anywhere to get out of this, you know, post-World War II disastrous economic situation. I I consider them uh, economic refugees, really. And so I grew up in Toronto. Um, and made my first trip back to to, uh, to Terracina with my sister when I was about 17, and that changed my life. Uh, then Italian culture became everything to me, and I think I was always the family documentarian. I mean, I really did this because I needed to understand uh, 
uh, our family, our culture, what was going on with the meaning of things, proverbs and names and stories. I think I always had that um, interest. And so I studied Italian and French literature um, at the University of Toronto, which has a huge uh, post-World War II uh, community. I think over half a million last time I checked. Uh, so it was all very current to us, Italian culture, but it was dialectal. It was oral, most of it. And I went back to Italy with my sister, discovered this whole place where um, people spoke my dialect. You know, it wasn't some weird um, thing. It was everyone spoke it. And I, I became absolutely entranced. And so I started to, um, so I did my BA, MA, um, then wanted to go to Italy to just immerse myself. I spent two years at the University of Florence on an Italian government um, scholarship for uh, Residente all'estero, which was a wonderful thing. I don't know if they still have that. And I extended it to two years. And then while I was there, I decided I was going to do a PhD. And, you know, got accepted at various places, Harvard, Berkeley, uh, other places, but ended up at UCLA because at that point, I was studying medieval and Renaissance Italian literature, and I wanted to do a dissertation on Boccaccio, you know, the Decameron and uh, uh, the tales in that uh, book, and ended up at UCLA, where they have a very uh, important Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies that was directed by Freddy Chiappelli, an Italianist, but also Marga Cotino Jones, who was a Boccaccio specialist. And so I came to UCLA. And that's how I ended up, you know, this triangulation, but always keeping those three points very, um, very active. You know, I, mm -hmm. my family's all in Toronto, go back frequently, and we're mm -hmm. all very close. So, yeah. Yes, we, we do a little bit uh, uh, um, very, very, very interesting and very nice. We dove, uh, dove a little bit into the experience of Italian-Americans in Canada. Uh, we had another guest whom you might know, Anita Luisio. Um, she talked more about the Montreal and the French yeah. heading, right. Um, right. you know, the, the, the issue with the, the, the French language and, and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing that you, uh, that caught my attention as you were, uh, sharing your uh, family story, you talked about uh, the journey to the U.S. Um, did your parents come together or was it um, maybe the father came first and then? Uh, well, not to the U.S., but to Canada. I am to Canada, I apologize. Specifically to Toronto. We're very keen about keeping those two separate. Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, my father went first uh, and he spent about a year, you know, uh, accumulando il uh, denaro to, uh, and you know, it's interesting because he had to sell his fields. They were contadini. He was mm -hmm. also a fisherman and they had to sell those fields in order to pay for the passage. They even had to borrow money and sell their house and all the rest of it. So, you know, we talk about the boom economico and it's always such an irony to us. It was to my father kind of painful that the land they sold became, you know, between Terracina and San Felice, mm -hmm. very, uh, you know, uh, sought after land, uh, coastal areas, beachfront areas. And so, you know, they missed out on that boom. Uh, but that's how it happened. And, uh, you know, he had been uh, in the war as a soldier, as a volunteer when he was young, and he had really gone through some really hard 
terrible, uh, disastrous kinds of experiences, including two years in a, a Nazi concentration camp. You know, um, they were picked up in in Greece and uh, taken north. He spent, I think, um, a few months in um, was it Zagreb? I'm not sure. And then ended up in northern uh, Germany for two years. So he was ready to get out mm -hmm. and start a new life. Absolutely. And your mom, how long after he uh, um, came to Toronto, followed him? And oh, how... it must have been. Yeah, mm -hmm. it must have been. Um, I don't know, uh, under a year, but around a year, uh, you know, uh, also at that time, there was the uh, uh, Suez crisis and she was uh, there. He was uh, on this side of the Atlantic and there was some question about whether she'd be able to emigrate at all. And it was very tense and very anxiety producing. Uh, the trip on its own would have done that, but, you know, having to and then I was born. And so they had to put me on a um on the passport and that took some time to do all of that. And this was a woman who was always very fearful, always, always very fearful and had lived very, very close to home and had never even traveled the hundred kilometers from Terracina to Rome, mm -hmm. never did that. And so here she was making a, a journey alone from the port of Naples and then on her own, you know, for the, duration of the trip and then then from Halifax to Toronto so I can't imagine really um I can't imagine her done that the courage it took for her to do that the gumption uh so also yes absolutely because uh you know as you indicated your mom um always stayed close to home so um this major journey that eventually opened up uh a new future for you and uh, uh the rest of your uh, siblings. So uh, you indicated that you were always and you're still probably within the family, the one uh, documenting um, history and stories and the nicknames and the proverbs and so forth. Obviously, with a past like that, and you just touched upon your father's story, and uh, uh, which is very, very interesting. It can be a full episode on, on its own. Um, so at some point, uh, when did you um, uh, felt the need to really devote yourself to um, to the oral histories and uh, what it might be going under the umbrella of folklore? And maybe you can define what folklore really means. Right, right. Well, here's what happened. Uh, when I was doing Italian studies and Italian literary studies. You know, it was the usual path for you to get some kind of understanding about your uh, literary heritage, at least. Uh, but when I came to UCLA, I was just because I was on this campus was an interesting coincidence because there was a, uh, a department of ethnomusicology. There was a program in folklore and mythology and there was a very strong program in oral history. So I actually um, audited some of these courses and um, I decided that I would change my dissertation topic and 
um, I had I had been assigned to an Irish ballad scholar through the Medieval and Renaissance Center. I was a research assistant, an RA, and I got assigned to a professor whose name was D.K. Wilkes, and he was an expert in um, old timey, you know, American music, but also Irish ballads. And he had me working on all of these variants. And of course, the re how you know that a song is an oral uh, is in oral tradition is that there are many variants of that song. And I thought, oh my goodness, why can't I do this for the Italian tradition? So uh, my, uh, who, who became my husband, uh, Edward Tuttle, who's a dialectologist, Italian dialectologist, had all of these recordings. And I started listening to these LPs. And at the same time, uh, I was assigned by the Regione Lombardia, to collect ballads in the Apennino Pavese, mm -hmm. in Pavia area. And so that became my dissertation. It was a dis dissertation around the ballad Cecilia that has connections as a motif to the Tosca, to measure for measure. And so what I did was I, I collected all these variants in literary, written uh, in archives in Pisa, my own field recordings, and then, you know, the literature on this stuff. Um, and that's what opened the door. And it opened a door to an entire world that had sort of been denied to us. Uh, here we were, uh, mostly Italians from an oral tradition, you know, that we spoke dialect. That's how our culture was transmitted. We didn't have written records. We had oral history. We had stories told around the you know, the um, the kitchen table at dinner. And so that became my life mission. And what I decided was that there were plenty of people um, studying Italian literature, but what there weren't enough of were Italians uh, talking about a culture that was much more intimate to us and to our actual heritage. And so I started recording family songs family stories, uh, the immigrant's uh, story through my family. So a personal narrative. And I became more acquainted and started attending uh, these international ballad conferences, but also the American Folklore Society um, meetings, the annual meetings. And it was, it was so life-changing. And I can only um, describe it as having finally come home that what I was looking at for was that, an understanding of our Italian culture and our Italian history, which we were not given the tools, either wittingly or unwittingly, I don't know, but um, that someone had to do this. And so that became my life mission. And that's what I did ever since. Uh, I taught folk culture, I taught oral history, uh, fieldwork methodologies, how to collect and it all revolves around the oral interview, of course. And so um, I taught some of that at UCLA. I've taught it at UC San Diego. I even taught it at Addis Ababa University for a quarter. I taught a, a graduate seminar to Ethiopian folklore scholars. They were all, you know, already had their degrees, but they were, um, uh, you know, doing graduate work. And so that was, that was very, um, fantastic experience because here we're in a country with, I don't know, around 80 oral cultures uh, without writing systems. And so what better place to give tools 
to document and to study their own culture. And so that's what I that's what I did. I brought recording equipment that I left there and uh, tried to, um, you know, just tried to, it was called theory and praxis, praxis. So why it's important and then how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, I think that was the last formal teaching I did. That was in 2010. Uh, so um, maybe before we go to the next uh, uh, to the next topic, whenever we talk about our history, um, my understanding also, you know, having the ability to tell everyone's stories, even with this new media as the podcast, um, yes. I think um, it's almost like the new way of collecting people's stories because you never know who is going to be interested in those stories, whether it's tomorrow, exactly. 10 years from now. Exactly. So you mentioned your family. I would assume that you have a huge archive, uh, maybe dig digitalized at this point of uh, taping. That's an interesting question. So, um, you know, collecting this material is very important. Uh, archiving it is very important. And I think one of the things Italian-Americans need to do is to get more serious about these sound and multimedia um, archives. And it's not just not just Italian Americans, of course. I mean, Italy too, and all, I mean, anywhere, every, everywhere. But uh, what to do with those archives is something equally important. So we're not just collecting to stash in some dusty basement. Uh, we need to make those accessible, and we need to reflect and study this material, and then to get it out there in public programs. So when I founded the Italian Oral History Institute, it was all about uh, not only having conferences, but public programs, so that this material could get out to uh, kind of a general audience, right? So I was very keen to do conferences and festivals and concerts and exhibitions, and we did all of that, and publications, of course. But um, I'll give you a good tangible example of, of, of uh, the absolute capital importance of the oral history, the archiving, and then the accessibility. So one of the projects that came out of my COVID time, you know, and we all, I, mean, I think there's going to be an entire uh, filone of studies of, you know, COVID studies, what came out of this period. Uh, one project that uh, came out of COVID for me was, you know, we were all thinking about death and passing and our legacies and our memories and what would happen to all this material. So I did have my archive digitized and I started, you know, really, I didn't have a real, not a real, real recorder anymore or even a cassette player. But once it was digitized, I started listening to this stuff and realized I had been recording family history since the 70s and 80s and 90s, all the way through. So I listened to those tapes again, and I was blown away by the stories about the war and the stories about my father's time in concentration camps. And so I get a piece of the story in one tape a piece and another, and I started mapping it all out and tracing actually on a map where he had been through the war and his war stories, and then discovered that um, there was this whole new uh, history being uncovered because it had actually been 
consciously uh, silenced for so long mm -hmm. about the internati militari italiani, Italian military internees. What was that? Well, these were, you know, 19 September 8th, 1943, when Italy capitulated and turned against uh, Germany. Uh, they were immediately rounded up, about 650,000 of them, and given a choice, you know, do you continue to fight with us um, or do you go to concentration camps? And so they were rounded up and taken to labor camps, and that's what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And so this has been recent reevaluation of what they were, what they did, and why. And it's considered a form of resistance Una resistenza senza armi, mm -hmm. without weapons. And so when they, uh, you know, detracted from the war, the German war effort, that which was also Mussolini's war effort, they were, um, they were resisting um, that as, as they could, you know, mm -hmm. without arms uh, and refusing to continue to fight. Absolutely. And uh, there was also recognition um, of their efforts. There was recognition. So, yes. And so I discovered that there was, uh, they were starting to um, recognize specific, you know, uh, the soldiers who had undergone this experience. And I, um, with the con Italian consul, consul general, Silvia Chiave, here in Los Angeles, you know, we I investigated and she helped you know, and I and I got onto this Facebook, uh, you know, group. You know, how do you do this? What do you need? Il foglio matricolare back in the. And so I managed to get all the documents, and I can't tell you what an experience it was to be faced with my father's foglio matricolare. Mm -hmm. So here were the stories that became concrete in a document, and that. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps as I can imagine as I remember that. And it was like, oh, my God, this stuff that we carry around with us in our heads, in our words. Um, here it is. Mm -hmm. It actually happened. And it's part of history. And it's not just part of oral family history. It's part of national history. Mm -hmm. And that uh, this must be taken into account. And, you know, and we need to reckon with it. And I don't think Italians have sufficiently reckoned with their own war history, their own collusion with the Nazi fascists. And one of the, re one of the outcomes of that is that there's a lot of denial about and rewriting of history. No, we were part of that. And uh, you know, fascism is resurgent and we have to be very vigilant and mm -hmm. we have to review those stories and we have to remember them and we have to stop sugarcoating or putting them under a carpet because they have real life outcomes okay. and they, you know, and current real life outcomes, results. So absolutely. We don't want uh, history to repeat itself. No, we don't. No, we don't. So in, uh, um, in your book, in, uh, in talking about the world of history, uh, so in search of abundance, mountains of cheese, rivers of wine, and other gastronomic Here it is. copies by Bordegare Press, and it's beautiful. I can't wait to get my own copy. Uh, uh, let's kind of uh, break it down. Um, 
some of the uh, chapters. The first one is your introduction, your own search for abundance. Um, Tell us a little bit, because also, you know, if I have to relate to my childhood and it's still applicable and with now my uh, nephews, one, you always eat everything is in a plate and the significance of bread. I mean, my dad cannot stand a breadcrumb to be tossed, wasted. He tells stories about, so, and sometimes it goes back to the, oh, because you were not in wartime, you know, when we were growing up that we were. So um, tell us a little bit about your own search for uh, abundance. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think we inherit these traumas from uh, history. So Italians have been a populace of migration for a long time. And why did they migrate? Very simple. I mean, to um, to satisfy bodily needs, to not go hungry again, you know, to um, have work, to be able to uh, provide for yourself in a reasonable, decent way, to find <laughs> shelter. I mean, a lot of these very basic needs were denied. And Italians have known, I mean, it's, it's such an irony, but maybe not an irony, right? that Italy is associated with food, Uh, but Italy is associated with food probably because so much of its history tells the story of hunger. So Il Paese di Cucagna Mm -hmm. is an inverse reflection of Il Paese uh, della Fame and the land of hunger. And here, you know, my family was involved with, um, on my father's side, we're involved with food, production of food, vineyards and uh, fishermen. He was both. Um, And yet they knew hunger. How is that? How did that happen? Um, So that search for abundance was something that moved populations all over, not just Italians. And there was this mythic place that I discovered that gave a visual representation to, I mean, centuries long representation from the Middle Ages onward called Il Paese di Cucagna, the land of cocaine. And it was true all over Europe. In England, it was called Lubberland. In Germany, it was called Schlaraffenland. It had various names, uh, uh, Panigon in French, France. Mm-hmm. But it was a place where the landscape was literally made of food Mm -hmm. so we had mountains of cheese and on top of this mountain was a cauldron spewing forth uh, macaroni all day long you know rolling down the sides of the mountain getting covered in cheese and landing in capon broth you know Mm -hmm. and there were caves of gold and roast chickens fell from the sky and the rivers were flowing with wine so this place got re-localized um, all through tradition, uh, all through literature. And these were on broadsides. So uh, performers would perform these songs and these tales on the public piazzas all over Italy. We have many, many broadsides that represent, you know, visually. So mm-hmm. you could like dream with your eyes open, right? And so when... Uh, it, it was this mythic place, you know, where was it? You know, oh, behind, you know, whatever, you have to travel for seven months and, you know, come to a gate and all this stuff. So that's a, a complex scholarly article uh, that is in the first one in the book, but it became the motor around which uh, 
fueled so many other uh, topics for me, you know, this mythic land. And so when it became possible, when mass migration became possible, America became Il Paese di Cucagna, became the land of plenty. And, you know, where the streets were paved with gold and where you'd never go hungry and all of this stuff. So that search for abundance took many to America and other places around the world, Australia, et cetera, et cetera. But America was the symbolic place mm -hmm. for immigrants. But they replicated this these rituals of abundance wherever they could. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you needed to have... You needed to assuage that fear of hunger. So what do you do? You pack your freezers and your cantinas and your refrigerators, and you have gardens and you produce much more than you ever need. And you make jardiniere and you, you, you know, you, this preoccupation with food mm -hmm. that literally just is, you know, 90% of your life as an immigrant. If you've actually known that hunger yourself, it becomes everything, you know, yes. uh, to to access, mm -hmm. to access. And we we um, I didn't really know hunger, but we inherited that fear. We inherited that worldview that was based around food, the procurement of food, the preparation of it, the you know the 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 packing of food around your life and it becomes kind of an obsession and you know and and even when it's not needed anymore uh you know you wonder why am i still doing these things mm -hmm. and i think that for me i was doing this stuff and when i had a family you know i'd i'd make excessive food and if i had a party i'd have to make like 30 dishes you know not not 10 but you'd have to overdo it every time and and i'm i you know because i've spent so much time studying food and these food mythology food practices uh all of this i've become much more aware perhaps than others might that um we need to stop it we need to live in the land of enough, mm -hmm. not in the land of too much, because mm -hmm. this is not responding to uh, our current needs. Uh, you know, we need to think more globally and think about not hoarding food, but sharing it. Okay. So I'm very interested in food justice programs as well. Absolutely, because I mean, it's almost an oxymoron that we are in the land of abundance and there are still people dying and uh, and we overproduce. So um, where yeah, where yeah. is the disconnect uh, there? And especially during COVID, those um, layers of society that were really fragile got penalized even more. Um, there are neighborhoods, there are um, uh, food um, insecure where you cannot even find a supermarket. Right. And uh, again, COVID just um, highlighted uh, those. Yes, issues. because even before COVID, one mm -hmm. in six Americans went hungry. I mean, those statistics, you know, just are, are they're a crime against humanity. You know, mm -hmm. we have enough, but we just need to find ways of, you know, sharing it mm -hmm. or making it accessible. Mm -hmm. So I am uh, very keen on food programs. I'm involved in, you know, preparing meals for homeless students uh and i've been involved with the homeless um quite a bit over the years right now i'm sort of in a hiatus but I, food justice is always i always um donate to food banks your local food bank that's an easy way to do it 
you know, but then if you want to be more hands-on, actually get involved in food distribution, in food collecting. And, you know, the St. Joseph's tables made that really tangible for me because here was something from our own tra well, Sicilian tradition, but... That's a, um, yes, let's explain a little bit what yeah, okay. uh, the, uh, uh, the table looks, as St. Joseph's uh, tables looks like, because we do have a couple of uh, establishments here that uh, do honor that uh, tradition with lots of elaborate breads. But for those who are not familiar, please tell us the when and the displays yeah, right. that you might have, uh, so have seen. March 18th, 19th, 20th, those weekends uh, are when Sicilians particularly, but other Southern Italians had the tradition, even in Sicily, of course, of making uh, La Tavola di San Giuseppe, the table for St. Joseph. And that involved, uh, you know, this was mid-Lenten season when the food stores were probably quite low and they needed ways to feed those who really weren't going to make it. And they collected food. Uh, they begged for food around and collected all this and then would give a table and laden the table with food and invite anybody who needed to eat to come to the table and, mm -hmm. and have a poor man's uh, meal. You know, there was always bread, ritual bread, usually uh, some citrus uh, and a fava bean. The fava bean was this emblematic food. So when Sicilians emigrated, this was something that was, they brought with them. And I think one of the reasons it was so, um, important to them is that it constantly reminded them of where they came from, from a place of hunger. Uh, part of the St. Joseph um, ritual is to have Isanti, the, you know, the three saints, Mary, Joseph, and, and Jesus, reenacting uh, this seeking hospitality. And normally what you do is you knock on three doors. And on the third knock, of the door, the person giving a table for some vow, for some personal reason, opens the door and lets the saints in and sits them at the table. So it's not just a tradition of feeding the poor. It's definitely a tradition of welcoming the stranger. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, that says it all. And that is a, a beautiful reminder of what migration is about. Mm -hmm. and why they emigrated and how we should deal with uh, those seeking hospitality, mm -hmm. a place to belong, a place to be fed. And so I, I love the St. Joseph tradition and I discovered it. it wasn't my tradition. I discovered it back in um, 1989 when the city of Los Angeles Cultural Affairs Department asked me to map the Italian community in Los Angeles, you know, they didn't know where they were, what they still, you know, um, celebrated, uh, the kinds of traditions they still had. And when I found the St. Joseph's table and Virginia Buscemi Carlson, it was just, oh my goodness. And so I wanted to do more to have people understand and to witness what that was. You know, these are tradi Italian traditions we can really be proud of, embrace, and continue. And so I um, helped curate exhibitions at the Hammer Museum here at UCLA with the Italian, with the Sicilian community, and then uh, did another table more recently, 2010, in the area known as Watts, 
a very mm -hmm. poor area in Los Angeles, you know, when you, you associate Watts, Watts, Towers. The mm -hmm. Watts Towers, but also with the Watts uprising, the Watts uh, riots, poverty, place of poverty. And so it was within the uh, Watts Towers Common Ground Initiative, and that's a whole other story. Uh, but I wanted to bring a table there where there were no Italians, but there were lots of recently arrived migrants, an older African community. And as an Italian, you know, it's kind of this, I don't know, creating common tables to sit around the same table and mm -hmm. to share food, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to bring it to a community that actually still needed it as the Sicilians needed it back historically. So I think um, it's one of the things I'm most proud of, of having done. And uh, also, if you probably remember back, uh, probably in the 80s, aggiungi un posto a tavola che c'è un amico in più. So add one more seat to the table. There is a, an additional friend, an additional guest. Um, right. I think, you know, um, by the stories you have um, uh, told us and also our personal, my personal experience is that uh, Italians in the, uh, Italians in Italy, but also the immigrants, they manage to deal with even scarcity in a honorable way where even if they had little there was always enough to share it with others and that's uh you know that's still the the, the spirit that everyone comments um if yeah. they get to italy and spend time with some of the local families and that's um uh and kind of goes back to the fact that you might be cooking for five but preparing for an army uh which yeah we we have to do in uh, in moderation um yes I, I think that is actually very important what you just said uh and uh, you know operating not from a place of scarcity and scarcity mentality but a place of there is enough for us all and to just extend the table you know just add a place and i think that's one of the reasons we always crammed our cantina because we never knew who was going to come to visit and we'd always okay. have something ready for them you, know? you had to be prepared um yeah. going off a little bit uh and going off a, a tangent uh but um it's a personal interest of mine you have dealt also with um uh, children's material um and tommy de paula seems to be a common denominator uh, we yeah. um, impersonate also La, La Befana here in January. So uh, Tommy, uh, the Paula's uh, books, along with uh, others, are some of the stories that are, uh, people are very familiar with. Uh, can you elaborate a little more uh, about? Yeah. yeah. Back in the 1990s, I wrote a piece uh, called Illustrating and Narrating Italian Folk Culture for Children. And, you know, because I had small children and I was uh, becoming acquainted with these books and that have become hugely, hugely popular. Um, I mean, it was not a folk tale as he originally claimed. It was an invented tale, but it was a tale type that we know about, um, you know, Big Anthony and Streganonna. And it's funny you should ask that because I've just, I have kind of taken on Befana, you know, Grandmother Witch, uh, the Good Witch, the Good Christmas Witch. Um, mm -hmm. And I am writing about her and I'm delivering a paper for Cambridge uh, University Fairy Tale uh, Network, like next week. <laughs> and so I've been thinking a lot about uh, positive images in our own tradition of older women. And, you know, we have lots of negative 
images of La Strega, you know, Bruza la Vecha, uh, Burn the Witch, Saw the Witch, um, Cut her into all of this stuff. Uh, but we don't do much with positive images of the old woman. And so I think we need to have, I think we need to do something about that. And uh, Befana is a good place to start. And I think about 15 years ago, I started to impersonate her. I started to dress her every 6th of January. And this is not a tradition we had grown up with. I think Befana was one of these characters that simply went by the wayside for immigrants, that S Santa Claus took over and, you know, that's, that's who, we didn't know about the Befana. We didn't do Befana, but I do Befana. And as a, as a female character and as a an older female character, you know, uh, create some respect. And I, I've done my own twist on her, but yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, these women who are grandmotherly, who are wise, who know the culinary and the herbal arts and all of that. So she's become a lovable character and that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, and uh, I'll tell you my experience last uh, last year. Uh, so um, I was in the in the um, streets of uh, Pittsburgh, and we have this neighborhood. It's called the Strip District, and that's where some of the most popular Italian uh, stores are. And I was all dressed up as the Befana. Um, uh -huh. And I had um, one of my teachers who was an amazing photographer kind of following this adventure. And then I entered one of the most famous uh, stores, which is uh, famous for the cheese and the cold cuts and anything Italian. And so I'm just like with my glasses, my broom, like my big bag um, at the uh, waiting to be waited on. And this gentleman looks at me, kind of x-ray me from top to bottom. And he, I don't know how old he was, but probably maybe his early 70s. And with my quick, you know, I introduced, hi, I'm La Befana, very nice to meet you. But <laughs> this gentleman started to have tears in his eyes. I said, La oh. Befana, I haven't seen you since I was eight years old. So he mm. was an immigrant, um, left Italy when he was just a little child, but he had encountered La Befana there. And um, he was so profusely touched by you know this tradition being brought and you know going the public um and uh so it is something that i really look forward to um not only for the children but for the parents who might be the generation that was born here so it's kind of an acquired taste and acquired tradition and maybe Absolutely. the grandparents uh, can associate with this character and we always look for different twists and some traditional elements and everything but uh, um, indeed um, sharing that message of acceptance and we are just a big extended family and now the internet allows us to really enter the homes of many more children than um, in in the past. Oh, I think well, she's become hugely popular, and not only with Italians. I mean, uh, I you know I, she's a figure that uh, a lot of women have embraced, and you know with with all of the the witch movement and all that. So um, yeah, by by adults as well. So uh, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, but unfortunately our time is up. And again, I want to mention one more time the title of the book and you, if you can share that beautiful cover, In Search of Abundance, Mountains of Cheese, Rivers of Wine and Other Gastronomic Utopias. 
by uh, Luisa del Giudice from Bordighera Press. Again, an amazing reading that um, it's perfect, not just for the holiday season, but it's just one of those great books that you should rush to get. So El Big Ben, a detto stop, it's time for us to say arrivederci e alla prossima. We want Grazie, to thank Viviana. you to tuning in into the program. And if you have any questions or comments, or if you have any topics you would like us to address, please contact us at the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember, if you or any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit our website at www.istitutomundoitaliano.org and click on the Italian Radio Hour tab. You can also subscribe to the Italian Radio Hour on YouTube or where you catch your favorite podcast. I would like to thank um, once again, my guest Luisa del Giudice. Maybe we'll see each other in, uh, in Terracina. And uh -huh. uh, <laughs> our sponsor, Istituto Mondo Italiano. And until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, grazie. <laughs>